Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. He's been here. been there. Magic down the middle, just what I thought. A hook shot at 12. Good! He's been everywhere. Shot from there and a save and a rebound. Score! Yes, with the cup. Sobel. That's one small step for man. Ted Sobel. One giant leap for man. The man, the myth, the legend. What the hell's going on out here? Hi, everybody. This is Vin Scully, and here's Ted Sobel. And it's time for a special Touching Greatness podcast here on the Believe Podcast Network because we're talking not just Wimbledon, but tennis overall, and there's no better guy to speak to than the longtime tournament director at the L.A. Open. And it was 86 years there, Bob, but I don't think you were there that long. Bob Kramer, welcome. Ted, you're very kind, and it's great to be with you and to hear your voice, and it's a privilege to be able to uh, chat today. Absolutely. How many years were you the tournament director? You know, give or take about 30, from um, from just around yeah, about age 32 to age 62 or so, and it went by so very fast. Yes, yeah, so has it been six years already? Is that what it is? You know, our last event was in 2012, so actually uh, in about a month from now, it'll be uh, the seventh year without uh, that tournament uh, being held in L.A. Um, on the UCLA campus. You know, it's just not the same around here. Not even having any professional tournament is just crazy. When you think about the size of Los Angeles and how many great tennis players have come out of here, that uh, doesn't register in my brain. No question. I think it's the uh, a, a, a result of several factors, and including the globalization of the sport. But in America, I think there's been a bit of a drop, at least on the men's side, you know, from, from men's champions. And we were so very lucky and had such a rich history of not only the tournament in L.A., but athletes, the tennis players coming from Los Angeles, going back to the very beginning, and, and players who lived here because the training conditions, the weather was so good. But it is it is stunning, and you know we do have the wonderful event, uh, the BNP Paribas Tournament, which is probably not too far from our local backyards. Yep. But uh, you're right, except for a couple of challenger events and a couple of ITF circuit type events, uh, there's not a major uh, men's uh, pro event here in Los Angeles. Of course, the one at UCLA was also at one time called the Jack Kramer Open, if I recall correctly. Is that right? You're right. It was Zach Kramer Open, and uh, uh, Dad helped uh, make that transition for us from the L.A. Tennis Club to UCLA. He had his name on it for three years, and then we had a series of sponsors coming in, including um, the Thrifty Corporation, Union Oil Company, Volvo, Mercedes, and others, and uh, had another sort of a second wind once we moved to the campus uh, immediately following the 1984 Olympic Games and uh, continued all the way through until, like, like we just talked about uh, seven years ago, our yeah. final edition was 2012. i got to jog my memory a little bit. If I recall, the Kramer seats were across the aisle from Johnny Carson. Is that correct? They were. They they were pretty much in the south end. It was like double A, double B, et cetera. And uh, Mr. Carson sat in the front row in double A, and Dad was – behind in B, just a couple of rows, along with Mr. Strauss, um, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, yeah, Johnny Carson was a great patron and um, was uh, a big booster of our sport and made a very large donation to help build the Los Angeles Tennis Center, where the tournament was held for about uh, 30 years. Yeah, he was uh, not only a contributor in that respect, but how early on did he get involved as far as uh, buying seats and just being there for the tournament? Do you remember? 
seems like uh, Mr. Carson began with his probably in the later years at the L.A. Tennis Club, which is not too far from you know NBC. Yeah. I know he had seats seats at Poly Pavilion, so I think he probably came into you know supporting it in a major way in the late '60s, and uh, pretty much had that same great location. Um, always knew where to park his car, and uh, <laughs> was very very kind. He was really really someone who was who was very supportive of the tournament. Absolutely, and uh, that wasn't too far away from Lloyd Bridges' seats either, right? No, they all had good seats in, in the area, and uh, including <laughs> some of the inner, inner sanctum folks. You know, the, the May Company family were, were always there, had a lot of the you know leaders and industry captains and a lot of entertainers, but uh, Mr. Bridges and William Shatner and many others had, had terrific seats. Some of them liked them on the side, some of them liked them at the end, where Johnny Carson liked his, but uh, yeah, it really created that ambiance. Uh, Leonard Strauss, uh, who was probably the godfather of uh, L.A. tennis for so many years and helped do so much to build the stadium, uh, referred to those south end seats. There were about 250 seats as the Royal Box. So that that was sort of a nice uh, moniker to uh, yes. not, not didn't hurt us at all to, to have, have that touch. Yeah, we could almost add the Hollywood sign uh, hovering above, right? We did. And, you know, when we when we continued the, the Hollywood theme uh, at UCLA, when we um, – brought out the net of the net and then really, you know, made it a, uh, a not miss event with uh, all the, the stars of tennis and then the music and the recording people and the actors, you know, getting to play a set of tennis. It was magical for uh, so many years and a good fundraiser. Absolutely. Speaking with Bob Kramer, the son of uh, the great Jack Kramer, who ran this tournament forever down at UCLA. And uh, I, I don't even think you know this, Bob. I covered Arthur Ashe's last tournament win at Pauley Pavilion. Did you remember that that's, that was his last win there? That's correct. And I, and I believe it was around 1975. No, it was and, later uh, than that, actually. Well, then, the, then maybe it was 77. Um, but in the, in the mid-70s, because we played it indoors at Pauley Pavilion yep. um, for those years, had big crowds. Uh, and uh, not only uh, Arthur Ashe, but I think uh, John Newcomb got one of his final wins, and maybe even Stan Smith, uh, another supporter. But yeah, Arthur was a Bruin through and through. And I always uh, remember that you know the first tournament he won, the major event, was the Pacific Southwest in the early 60s. Yeah. And his last tournament was uh, at UCLA again in in the mid 70s. And what a what a great champion and a gentleman he was. Absolutely. How about the other great names, though? When you think of Laver, Connors, McEnroe, Sampras, Agassi, I mean, they all played there. They all won there, and it's just an unbelievable tradition. It really was. It had a great pedigree, and it seemed like, in fact, we used this. It seemed there was a period of about 25 years uh, when we were coming from the L.A. Tennis Club over to UCLA that we had this run of the winner of our tournament had been a Grand Slam champion in the past, in, in once in a while, in the same year of the tournament. And I think Radic stepped in it because somebody broke that streak. But uh, you're right. You go back to the uh, the 60s, whether it was Emerson and Labor and Stolle and Ash and Newcomb and Roach and Connors and McEnroe and Sampras and Courier and Edberg and Connors and on in, even Isovich, Becker, Steak, you know, uh, Guga, Clareton, a lot, all the players playing. And uh, and doing so very well. Um, the conditions were good for them, and uh, they really enjoyed it. And um, the, the weather wasn't so bad either. How did I know you were going to be an encyclopedia remembering all those names? I did my homework. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you lived it. You didn't just do your homework. <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. And, and it was it was really rewarding. I mean, just thinking back, and it, you know, it draws my memory the some of the relationships to have, and they weren't always close personal, but they were close 
professional yep. with uh, the Chang family or um, even some of the women players, you know, to get to know them well, whether it was Tracy Austin or Pam Shriver, Billy Jean King, and many of the others. But uh, to get to know Pete and Andre in particular and the American players. Uh, but then, you know, we had a good run with Richard Kravchuk, a Wimbledon champion, uh, who, who won our tournament in the year that he won it, Stefan Hedberg who won the Olympic Games, came back and won the, the tournament here. So it was a combination of not only the American players, but the global players. And those were, you know, just such warm memories. And uh, it was amazing how well the players played. They not only entered, but did well. So that's that's the way we got those names. And then we finally put them all, you know, started putting names inside the stadium just to remind everybody of, you know, when you come to this tournament, here's who you see and who is one. And it became a, a who's who. It was a Hall of Fame um, kind of a player field. Boy, who's who is, you're not kidding. I used to love so much when I was involved there as the uh, on-court announcer, just going to the back into one of the rooms and hanging out with the guys. And I remember, like, Richard Krychek was telling me once that he is just a huge uh, Lakers fan, for example, I was like what? What do you know about the Lakers? He says, I just grew up loving that team. You know, it's just stuff like that. And and you know, the one year we had Andy Murray there, and it, he was working out in Southern California, and there was an opening, and you ended up getting him into the tournament. That was great too. And Juan Martin Del Potro. It's great to see those guys still around, and although uh, both uh, physically uh, ailing at this time. No, it's true, and. Uh... And even uh, Novak Djokovic, in fact, in that year where Novak actually ended up pulling out of the tournament, uh, the following year he came and he was working out at the event. Um, and even if the players weren't necessarily playing the tournament, they were in town and training. There were just so many uh, people that knew that there was a, a sort of a critical mass that you could come to Los Angeles, whether it was at UCLA or to play with the college teams or go to the to what used to be the Home Depot Center and play yep. at the USPA a training center. It was just a nucleus. Uh, in a way, you know, in those uh, years in the 90s and then and the early part of the, the next uh, decade, so many players would come to L.A. It almost felt, again, like the days of the L.A. Tennis Club, same initials, LATC is Los Angeles Tennis Center, where Tilden and Budge and Vines and Riggs and Gonzalez and Segura and a lot of people and the women players, you know, whether it was uh, Alice Marble or uh, Pauline Betts, or any of the great champions we, we touched on briefly before we talked about the great young champion, yep. similar to Coco, uh, and that was the great Maureen Conley, who was the champion at age uh, 15. So really, L.A. has uh, just got an incredible tennis history, and people forget that many of the early greats actually learned how to play there. This is true, and... Uh, Example: Jack Kramer uh, played uh, as a young player. He had regular um, workouts with uh, Bill Tilden, with uh, Bobby Riggs, and many others. Same thing with with Billie Jean coming up. They're all protégés of the Southern California Tennis Association Junior System, where they created an environment where the best players could come together, and literally you could see the cream rising to the top. But with today's um, training advantages and all of the different um, uh, nutrition and things like that, the better equipment, the game has really become so much more globalized and exciting to see a young player like Coco coming through at a, at a young age, 15, just like uh, Chris Everett or Tracy Austin or um, Jennifer Capriati we touched on, Maureen Conley. You know, she's right there, uh, has made the nice transition from junior tennis to adult tennis, yes. and can't wait to see what she does in the round of 16 at Wimbledon this year. Absolutely. And by the way, let's talk equipment real briefly. Uh, if you don't have a Jack Kramer racket in those days, something is definitely wrong. Well, as Dad said, it put me through college, and um, 
he, his belief was, and he was with Wilson his entire life, that um, uh, he, he recounted that they sold uh, in various models, including some of the ones that he would call the, the, the dime stores, you know, about 30 million uh, tennis rackets, which, which he, he felt was, I think he said it was maybe the second largest selling item with a, uh, a player's name on it to maybe it was a Ted Williams baseball or something like that. And today, most of the rackets, uh, they have numbers on them rather than players' names. Yeah, it's got to be a, a prideful thing just to recall that, though, right, Bob? Well, I'll tell you what. It was really a uh, privilege, you know, living living in the family where you had a father who had done so many things, but he was just dad in our household, and it was just it was really um, wonderful to grow up knowing that uh, your your father was a great champion, but didn't act like one at home. When he came home, he was just dad, and that made it so much easier um, for everyone to to live in his shadow and to follow his example. And he was just jacked to those of us who got to know him in his later years. And I loved talking old tennis with him and. Uh, uh, I, I miss our conversations because I ate it up every second of it. Well, he was just a sports fan, and as you know, he hung out at the track. Yep. And you could count on him down at Hollywood Park, sitting there with Dick <laughs> Van Patten or whoever, and just uh, amongst amongst the guys. But uh, yeah, he was a regular guy, and um, I think it was his father, you know, that uh, you know taught him those basic skills of you know humbleness and just being just being a, a regular person and not putting on, as he might call it, any airs. And that uh, you know it was just something where he he knew his manners and uh, was polite to everybody, and uh, it was sort of fun to watch him, you know, out in the public eye and just uh, you know he was being treated. Um, as something special, but he treated everybody just as if they were in the talking like you and I. He had a common touch. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about the All England uh, Club and a place where I should be right now. You know, I was credentialed again this year. They're unbelievable to me. They've been so nice, but I, I got to finish my book, so that is an absolute priority. But I'm thinking usually the second week when I got there, I was the last American standing besides, certainly on the male side anyway. Uh, right now, we still well, got a couple guys left, Query and Sandgren. Unfortunately, they play each other next. True. Actually, yeah, you know, that surface has become um, almost like a universal bounce where, you know, back in the day, the grass, you know, the idea was you'd serve in volley, and that's gone away in the last 20 years, probably starting around that Borg-Connors era. But it's great to see the Americans left. Clearly, Serena's got to be a big favorite on the ladies' side. Everybody's following Coco. I'm sure up in Vegas they've got her in the top four of the betting odds. Got to throw in a plug for Vegas, and Dad was born there. Yes. But on the men's side, it's clear that this, you know, the the big three, um, and it's nice to see Andy Murray, who might have been the fourth player, playing the little doubles. But it's hard to get too far away from Roger, Rafa, and Novak. And then on the women's side, it's pretty it's pretty wide open. But uh, maybe this Coco's got another win or two in her. But uh, the grass has become, you know, so even over there. It's been so well done that um, the bounce is almost like a hardcore bounce. So it's uh, it's not a serve and volley uh, or a game anymore. It's a it's a game that everybody can play. You can be a defensive player, an offensive player, which means that uh, Roger, uh, who's more offensive. Uh, minded, you know, can can play his game, and Rafa, who's more defensive minded, can play his game. And uh, but a big servant volleyer has a chance to come in, and um, the grass has just become a lot fairer overall. It used to be there were two kinds of players: there were your black, uh, grass court players, hard court players, and then clay court players. And now everybody can, seems to do well at Wimbledon. 
Let's talk more about Corey, Coco, Golf, and uh, they're all cuckoo for Coco right there right now, and it, it's become an international craze, which you got to love. It, nothing is better than having a new star in tennis, and hopefully she can uh, make this thing special down the road. Well, she has made it special, and uh, if you look at her uh, pedigree, you can see that you know her parents were athletes. They were NCAA-level uh, yep. uh, competitors. Um, they're grooming her. It seems like they're making a lot of the right moves. They're putting her um, into the women's game slowly, keeping her confidence up. Uh, that's one thing that Dad felt was important. That you know, as he moved into uh, adult tennis, he was still playing in some you know some junior events until that right moment where he could keep his confidence high. Because sometimes if you get in, it, it gets in your head. He says, you know, losing you don't want to have to become a habit. So Coco, she's been uh, winner of these major uh, uh, Grand Slam events, U.S. Open champion, French Open champion. She's played in a couple of uh, slams. She's coming through this year, starting to get her feet wet. And at age 15, she looks a lot like, you know, following in the footsteps of, you know, we mentioned some players, but it's like Martina Hingis, Tracy Austin, Chris Everett, um, Jennifer Capriati, Venus, Serena Williams. And if she can um, not come too far too fast, uh, but when you hear her interviews, you can tell she's mature. You can tell she's grounded. You can tell that she's got, you know, the right framework. She's she's not overconfident, but she's very confident in her abilities and seems to help handle herself so well. She she seems to, you know, be way beyond her age. Absolutely. And it looks like she'll end up being about six feet tall, so she's going to have physical advantages as well. Um, and has every right to believe that she's going to, you know, excel in the women's game as she has in the uh, girls' game. That's exactly what I was going to bring up, the fact that she hasn't even filled into her body yet. And when she does that, and with the power she already has, especially on the backhand, I mean, this girl could turn out to be anything and uh, maybe the next one. You're absolutely right. And with her speed and her skills and strength, and you're right, she's still growing. I think she's maybe 5'10", five, 5'11". Five, she could end up being 6'1". Who knows? But um, it's obvious that uh, she's got the power. She's got the um, the speed. She's got the poise. Um, and whoever has been preparing her, it's been well. And I, I know that she met uh, Serena when she was 8 years old playing in the Little Mo tournament um, and then went over to Patrick Mortiglou's, um, uh camp in Paris mm-hmm. where uh, Serena trained heavily for years and years so it looks like she's getting the right advice and if she can you know just you know keep composed and uh, just take these things slowly and, and, and maintain her balance she has every right to believe that uh, she'll become a, a dominant um, a champion and what about the rest of the women's side the fact that it's so wide open i think is actually sort of a negative and in, in general you'd like to say hey it's great anybody has a chance but we always like to see the superstars do what they do and uh serena looks like she's slowed down a lot but it still doesn't matter because she's that much better than everybody oh and uh she's obviously coming off a, a year where she was off uh yeah. with her uh, family growing etc cetera, etc cetera, but she looks a little bit uh, more fit and she, she did at the beginning of the year, and uh, her confidence is there, so I, I'm pretty sure she would be the betting favorite, but, uh, you know, there have been so many changes at the top of the game. It seems like every other week there's a new number one. It's hard to keep track. <laughs> and the men, I guess, in some ways, you know, not that it's boring, but, you know, you still have Novak Djokovic, uh, Roger Federer, Rafa Nadal, in fact. Boring uh, greatness is what it is. Yeah, well, boring. I guess the what despite of that was the big story was when Rafa didn't get seated second and uh, Roger did. You know, that became the big deal. But you and I know they've got a grass court ranking that they go back 
five years, and uh, Rafa uh, hasn't fared so well at Wimbledon lately, but I, I wouldn't bet against uh, Rafa Nadal and Roger Federer. Heck, what a what a what a timeless story he is, and what a great representative of the sport. Um, hard to root against any of those guys. How do you see what Roger is doing at his age, and still looks like he's pretty much the same guy, and he's just now pacing himself? You know, there's really almost a nothing like it. Uh, I mean, when you take a look back, we thought, you know, the Ward Connors era, then you had the uh, the Sampras, Agassi, McEnroe stuff, and, you know, he's gone beyond that. You know, Jimmy played pretty well up until age 39, 40, same thing, Ken Rosewall, but not many players have been able to maintain their fitness and, you know, be relatively injury-free. I know Roger, you know, had some surgeries and things, but, but what he's figured out is he's had to, you know, pare down the schedule. To, to be fit and ready for these major events. That's what defines his career. And I think whatever he's done, he's been able to find that balance. I know a couple of years ago, he started taking you know the fall tournaments off and getting ready for the next year, and it seems like it's paid off. So his fitness, uh, his training regimen, his reduced schedule have allowed him to extend his career. And, you know, he was saying, you know, uh, 10 years ago, well, I'd like to play till 35. Well, yeah. now he's, he, he's, he wants to play till 40. And as long as he's winning, honestly, five years ago, Ted, I thought, oh, he's out of slams. He's never going to get past, you know, Novak and Rafa, who are younger, and, and Andy Murray is coming up and some of the others. But uh, Roger has won, you know, a couple of slams in last year, and I think he may have a couple more in him. So, He's uh, he's he's blazing new territory. There's there's no one who's seen the uh, resume of his major wins. He's gone by everybody, which is remarkable. He's the all-time greatest, and to me, just showing the passion that he shows at this age, and he still wants to do it. That's what's amazing to me. He's committed. He knows what it takes, and he's well grounded. And it's almost um, it's unbelievable that his uh, sportsmanship and his you know, general demeanor, his behavior, the example he sets for not just tennis players or athletes, but for anyone. He is the model kind of a citizen that everyone would like to have a son or son-in-law grow up to be like Roger Federer with or without a racket. Yeah, the only thing that uh, we had a hole in in our tournament at UCLA is we never had Roger play there, and that would have been incredible. But I know the finances are a whole different ballgame in that sport, and that, that kills me personally. It, it shouldn't be that way. Well, I remember going to Australia and talking to Roger about 10 years ago, and he said, you know, I understand the history. I'm going to play it someday. I'm just not ready yet. And uh, unfortunately, we probably weren't there when, when he might have played, but he um, is, is such a champion. He's And he was so very kind uh, after Dad's passing and wrote a nice letter and nice. made a huge uh, donation to the foundation, et cetera, et cetera. But he's what you just call a class act. And... Um, it's uh, cyclical, you know. I don't see a lot of other players, you know, coming out of Switzerland with with his kind of skills. But you know, things go ebbs and flows. Um, and American tennis is in one of those ebbs right now, where the, on the men's side, anyway, the last American champion on the men's side of, of a Grand Slam winner was Andy Roddick, and I believe I said it was the U.S. Open in about 2003. Hmm. It's, it's sort of hard to believe we haven't had a male win a singles title at a Grand Slam you know, for more than 15 years. Uh, but Australia went through a drought, and they've got some good young players. But uh, right now it looks like the ball's in Europe's court, and uh, we'll see if uh, Coco can become the next wave of women's champions and follow in their 
hero's footsteps, uh, Serena and Venus. Talking Wimbledon and tennis here on Touching Greatness with Bob Kramer, and a great name certainly in uh, tennis lore. And uh, Bob, the state of the game, though, in the U.S., I think is starting to pick up a little bit separate from Coco. I like some of the younger girls that are playing, and Allison Risk is still alive at Wimbledon, and she's got a big one against the top seed, Ash Barty, so that's a tough one as well. But I think some of the younger girls are there, and I'm not so sure about the guys, though. Are the Riley Opelkas uh, of the world, are they going to be good enough? You know, I guess there's a big difference between top 50 and top 10 or yep. grand slam singles titles. And, you know, you've got uh, Francis TFO yep. and a bunch of other players, but you're right. Um, there aren't as many young rising players right now on the men's side as there are on the women's side. And um, uh, John Isner continues to, to carry the banner. I think that, you know, it looked like Steve Johnson had a chance to threaten a couple of other players, but... You know, except for in the, in the past several years, except for maybe the Bryan brothers winning some men's doubles titles, we haven't seen too many American men get to the uh, semifinals or even quarterfinals of these major events. But there's a good young crop coming behind, but the women seem to be, you know, popping into the to that top group. And, you know, players like uh, Sloan Stevens, um, players like Coco, uh, Taylor Townsend, some of the other ones, you know, seem like they're they're just ready to to make that jump. And some of it, has been prevented by Serena Williams. I mean, she's been sure. around, still, still, still winning majors. She's out there trying to break Margaret Court's all-time, you know, record of 24, you know, major single titles. Um, but yes, the the women seem to be doing just a little bit better than the men. But the state of the game is that the USTA, which through the uh, that great engine of the U.S. Open, has been putting more emphasis, more resources um, into the game and trying to develop it, you know, from the from the ground up and putting focus on better coaching, better training facilities. They've got their, you know, 110-plus court facility in Florida, other regional training centers being developed. So they're they're putting the money that they earn from the U.S. Open back into the game, and um, grassroots tennis is strong, but as most sports, you know, and I've got grandkids, as I look across the sports landscape, it seems like, you know, slightly fewer people are playing uh, outdoors as much as I did or as much as my kids did. Yeah. And um, I think all of us, all of our, your listeners and, and all the people interested in everyone's health, you know, getting kids outdoors a little bit more, whether it's soccer, whether it's lacrosse, baseball, swimming, you know, cross country, it's a healthy thing that uh, will hopefully lead everyone into learning to, to be safe in the water, swim, play golf, and do sports of a lifetime that will can be passed along to their grandkids. And put your cell phone in the in the tennis bag and let it sit there for an hour while you play a couple of sets. It's okay. That's exactly right. The, the devices, the electronic devices, and things like that. You know, my own grandkids. You know, the two-year-olds they got their you know they got their parents' iPhone out there and they're playing games and different things on it. But um, you know, it's a balance, and um, I think it's up to us, our generation, to try to encourage. You know, our children, our grandchildren to be more active out, outdoors, and it leads to a healthier life. And it's really wonderful because, you know, tennis, golf, and so many other sports, they're, they're, they are sports of a lifetime, and you can uh, play them together. And, and in our family, as you know, we, we have a lot of golf tradition and, and tennis. Yeah. And uh, we're now taking trips together where we can, you know, participate in those sports. And, uh, yeah, so all the kids listening, <laughs> go out and do something healthy, take a walk. You know, go out and uh, pick up a sport, and uh, you can pass it along to, to the next generation. Yeah, you could text all your friends and say, I'm on the tennis court. Don't bother me for an hour. 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah. Put down those phones. Take take the batteries out. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you can find the batteries anymore, that's a, that's a whole different story. Uh, Bob, what about uh, the fact that you guys are a golfing family too? Uh, Los Serranos. You need to tell the folks that don't know have been a part of the Kramer family for how many years now? Well. Los Ranos uh, started back in about 1925, and Jack Jack Kramer, um, after his uh, playing career, was beginning in singles to line down. He started making some investments and things, including Ed told me that, uh, well, he was involved in maybe a bowling alley or two, but then he got involved in golf. And so this golf course at Chino Hills, he became a partner with uh, a couple of other individuals in the early 50s and then bought them out in about 1959 or 60, and it was an 18-hole golf course. And uh, eventually, it became 36 holes. And uh, his dad told people later in his life, he, when he was introduced, he would usually start off and say, "Well, I just want to get one thing clear." He says, "Tennis is my hobby, but golf is my profession." <laughs> and uh, people people would always get a kick out of that. So, tennis and golf have always been strong in the Kramer family, and happily, Los Ramos is continuing and doing well. And we're now trying to figure out how to pass the great gift that our parents had given us. And uh, Leave that for the next generation uh, of the family to uh, to operate, uh, and hopefully uh, in the same location. That's awesome. One more thing about Wimbledon. How about the pairing of Serena Williams and Andy Murray, and what that does for the doubles game? That or mixed doubles in this case. That you know, few people tend to not stay around to watch it. Well, you brought up a good point, and I think that's the case, uh, Ted, in all sports, whether it's football, baseball, basketball, hockey, tennis, and golf. People uh, want to find and hear stories. And so the story is the comeback of Andy Murray. And, you know, they were singles champions not too long ago, both Olympic champions. So their pairing brings great interest. And as you've seen in the men's side, especially there have been some tremendous upsets. The, the fields in both of them are not maybe quite as sparkling as they were, but with uh, Serena playing in the mixed doubles, which is very rare, with Andy Murray playing doubles and doubles on his comeback, it really adds magic. And so the doubles match with Andy Murray and his partner were like one of the big three playing. It, it just kept the people in their seats. The same thing with Serena. Serena playing with Andy Murray is a huge story. It creates lots of different angles. It brings in lots of values that the sport has created, you know, longevity for Serena rehabbing and come back for Andy. And they're, they're both sparkling interviews, as you know. Andy Murray and Serena Williams are probably two of the best guests you can have. And so to see them playing together is just a great testament not only to their individual skills and the great athletes in their own right playing singles, but how they are now coming together uh, as a doubles pairing to really, you know, help support tennis. So that's that's very meaningful for the broadcasters. It's wonderful entertainment for the fans, and it's a great message to kids out there that, you know, these two players, let's face it, there's a great story there that from two different backgrounds, you know, coming together is um, it's it's magic. It's just it's it's magical. It's magical specifically because of where it's at, too, because Wimbledon, just the fact, and I was there when Andy Murray broke that, I think it was a 77-year drought of Brits winning there. It was amongst the top three or four greatest events I've ever covered. It was incredible to be there when he won. I actually got to ask him the first question in the news conference when he finished. Uh, I said, are you aware that you're the first person to ever, the first Brit to ever win Wimbledon in shorts? And he loved that. Good point. Yes. Fred Perry was, exactly. uh, even a statue has him wearing pants. But exactly. <laughs> yeah, that, that was so important to the Brits. And I think 
they had Virginia Wade back in the 70s, but uh, Andy was clearly uh, the kind of guy who had the, you know, the skills, the chops, the family backing, everything, you know, in the making of a champion. And then, you know, you turn that into magic and won not only Wimbledon there, but on the same court, won the Olympic gold medal. And uh, as we all know now, he's been knighted, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, he's doing more good things to put back into the game, investing in his own country. And it's great to see him coming back. Uh, I'm not sure what his singles future is, but for somebody who's had a, a major hip procedure, he looks very fit out there playing on that center court. Yeah, he's going to have to uh, pace himself a lot more than Roger does, I think, just for that serious injury, no doubt. i got to get a quick thought from you on the Aussies, what's going on there. Uh, Bernard Tomic, uh, he gets fined for, they say he's not playing professionally out there, as if he doesn't care and he's not trying. He does have a history of uh, just being sort of lackadaisical. I think I'm being generous on the court. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, the, the current one in the headline in that category is Nick Kyrgios. Yep. You know, and both of those players, you know, the, the sort of bad boys, um, but the most talented, it seems like the, the more mild-mannered ones, you know, whether it's Jordan Thompson, who's uh, being mentored by uh, Leighton Hewitt, et cetera. And Leighton comes from that fiery background. Yeah, Leighton was know, a I bad boy, too. I remember him well. Oh, he was. He was. not Maybe not quite in the same vein as Bernard Tomic or, uh, or Nick Kyrgios, but you know, so much talent in those guys, if they could just, you know, calm down and you watch Kyrgios play and it's like, it's it's remarkable that uh, he has that much talent, but uh, throwing it away in some ways, but, you know, would he be better off with coaching or some kind of input, but he, he looks like a wild stallion out there, and I guess that's nice, um, but it reminds me a little bit, in the, not in the temperament, but in the development thing, you know, just can't get focused as much, and I and I can remember a young Pat Rafter who was sure. a completely different temperament. Temperament. He was he was more in the vein of Rod Laver, Ken Rawlswell, uh, John Newcomb, but you know he had interests beyond tennis. But Fani became focused and was able to win two U.S. Opens back to back. No question, Dominic Curios have talent that they need to come up with the focus and the maturity to you know to to raise their game to the level of those three. And it's nice to get to the semis and quarterfinals once in a while, but I think both of those players need to go back to the drawing board and just, you know, get serious about their professional future because I don't think they're putting enough effort into their training and quite enough focus into their preparation. I don't know about Tomic because I've talked to a few uh, Aussie guys who have said uh, they don't think he's ever going to make it. But Kyrgios, to me, has as much talent as anybody, and I'm including the top three. He is that special, but he's the head case. Well, I don't think, you know, just going back before that uh, that second-round match with uh, Rafa, yeah. I, I think if you look at the players in the past five years, I don't think anyone – maybe outside of Novak Djokovic, has an even record, let alone a winning record, against uh, Rafa Nadal, which I, in, in, to me, you know, he's been the most consistently mentally tough guy out there. So he's the kind of player who can come out and win a match. But if you look at his record, I bet if you went back, uh, Ted, and look at the matches after Kyrgios beat Rafa in those events, other than the final, for example, at um, Acapulco this year, that the next match was probably just a huge letdown, you know, where you go out, have a big win, and then lose to some qualifier. So they need consistent focus, and both of those players can be very distracted and distracted and just a little bit wild. Uh, they need some need some more maturity and self-discipline, and where does that come from? That's a $64,000 question. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> uh, yeah. To me, the bottom line is that when you have the greats, 
like we do with the big three with Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal, those guys also have a demeanor about them, I think, that fits the sport. And uh, almost like golfers do, you have to have a special kind of an attitude because uh, it can get to you. Oh, I agree with you. In fact, I was just up walking the links at Pebble Beach and following Brooks Kepka and Gary uh, Woodland and, sure. and the other players, and it's amazing, you know, how more business-like they are. Obviously, there's uh, it's a, there's a different side of that sport, but the Australians, um, you know, always had the maturity uh, up until you know not too long ago. There have been some other bad boys um, in the sport, uh, including Mark Philippoussis. But uh, by the way, speaking of Australians, yeah. it's wonderful to see and it's great to celebrate Ash Barty becoming the world's number one woman player, which we haven't had a number one woman from on the women's side from Australia for so long. So, sure. you know, maybe that maybe that's the, the next direction for the men is to act like Ash Barty does, which is in a very classy, you know, mature, sort of a um, a measured way. It's it's like she had parents. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing how that works sometimes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so who are your picks at Wimbledon coming up? Well, I'll have to be honest. You know, I can't get too far away from Serena Williams on the women's side, honestly. I mean, not... In my heart of hearts, we're all rooting for, you know, Coco, et cetera, et cetera. But you've got Halep and a couple of players um, in the field. I think on the men's side, you know, it's clearly, uh, especially since some, you know, some paths have been open for those three players is, is that they needed help. It, it looks like to get outside of, you know, Novak, Djokovic, Roger Federer, and Rafa Nadal, I, I think the odds of someone winning outside that group is, you know, one out of 50. At that. Slim and none, so and gonna, Slim is not doing well. That's correct. So I'm going to put my confidence in Serena Williams if she has enough um, gas in the tank. And um, I think on the men's side, it'd be too hard. I just have some feeling. I'm just watching, you know, Rafa. It seems like he's got the spark. He's got a little chip on his shoulder. He hasn't done that well at Wimbledon the past few years. Um, but then, you know, you walk out on the court and know that Djokovic is over there and it's like playing against yourself. It's like there's, you know, there's no way, there's no way out. So, but I'll, I'll go with Rafa on the men's side and on the women's side, Serena. Sounds good to me. By the way, I was there when Rafa won, uh, I think, was it 2010? I think it's been that long or somewhere around there. It has, it has, it has been a while. Yeah. And uh, I got to ask him a couple of questions, and one of the things I brought up was because I saw Pau Gasol just before I went to Wimbledon, and he says, if you talk to Rafa, tell him I'm rooting for him. <laughs> so I said, Pau Gasol <laughs> says hello from the Lakers, and that got him going. He loved that, too. So. <laughs> I was going to say, big smile on, a, on his face. Yes. And, uh, yeah, what a, what a great champion. And uh, I'm sure we could go into another two-hour conversation about the Lakers in 2020, but, but let's not. Yeah, we'll save that for another time. The Lakers and the Clippers now, right? <laughs> Unbelievable. It looks like there's not enough room in one building for those two teams to play in, but it's going to be exciting. Well, it's about time, and they actually call it a rivalry because it really never has been. They've never been good at well, the same time or great. I'm always rooting for my pal and former tennis promoter Jeannie Buss to have yes. another world champion. So you 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 can't uh, you can't discount the Lakers, and it's great to be in such a great sports town. And you know, watching the Dodgers do so well this year, it's uh, it's it's going to be a great 2019 fall in 2020. And for those who don't remember, Jeannie Buss with the L.A. Strings at the Forum, right? Yes, she did. She started uh, there, cut her teeth on that, and got involved in uh, forum championship tennis, putting on lots of exhibitions, including, you know, about eight or nine of the names that we've mentioned today. Were you involved uh, in any of that at all? 
You know, at the beginning, I, I got to, to be uh, friendly on a professional level with Jeannie. She was so easy to, to speak with, just very well-grounded. That's for sure. Um, we were always we always commiserating on, you know, appearance fees and this, that, and the other, but uh, she ran a great program. We ran men's and women's exhibitions, and their, their goal and her father's goal was always to be able to have a Davis Cup tie. So it was so great to see the forum host the Davis Cup, and that was the last match that uh, John McEnroe was captain. And then it was even greater uh, a few years later when the Southern California Tennis Association uh, was able to induct uh, Jerry and Jeannie Buss into oh. our Tennis Hall of Fame. That okay. was a wonderful moment. You might remember that, and she was inducted by Jimmy Connors. Oh, that's so awesome. Couldn't, couldn't do much better than that. Another UCLA guy. See, it all comes Another back. Another It all comes back to Westwood, doesn't it, seems like. Well, it can sometimes, but remember, Dad went to SC, even though not very long, and uh, this town is a a two-school town, and uh, they're great programs, so I guess it's go Bruins and fight on. Ah, we're having fun. Bob, I appreciate the time. It's always great to hear your voice and uh, chat some tennis, so it's it's getting good this week at the All England Club. It is. It's going to be exciting, and speaking of that, you know, just it's hard to believe just a couple of years down the road. In fact, I may have to call you uh, for some ticket connections at Wimbledon. It's going to be Dad's diamond anniversary, and uh, wow. the trainers are probably heading to London. He won his singles title in 47, and so in 2022, it's hard to believe 75 years. Oh, that's incredible. I, I hope I can go with you, but if you're calling me for tickets, you got a problem, buddy. <laughs> I still have a few friends in, in I'm sure Mexico. you do. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, is that like one of the bucket list places on the planet if you're into sports? I'll tell you what. If you are going to an event, and whether it's, you know, if you talk about Fenway and Wrigley Field or wherever you want to go and visit, you know, all of the slam sites, especially Wimbledon. I think Roland Garros is there, too. They're all great events for their own reasons. But it's really fun to, to see the how competition works that the four slams are competing with each other, not only for amenities, but for prize money, for, 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 for bragging rights for things. And so they keep improving their conditions. They keep improving the prize money, and it just makes it so special. You know, the, the tennis players are making a lot more than the golfers, not that they, they care that much, but uh, it's really fun to see the roofs going on, the sites expanding, the food getting better. I mean, you know, it's so much better. They're making it so easy for the fans and for the players and, and the broadcasters to, to tell the great stories that we see on the court between the lines. Bob, thanks for your great stories. Appreciate the time again. Uh, had a lot of fun on this chat, and thanks for joining us on Touching Greatness. Ted, it's been a privilege. It's always great to hear your voice and to follow you in all the many sports that you're covering, and um, thanks for representing Los Angeles so well for so many years. My pleasure, sir. All the best. Be well. That's Bob Kramer, who used to be my boss for many years out at UCLA for the L.A. Tennis Open, which, of course, was under many other names, depending on the sponsors those years. And it's great to talk tennis specifically with all the buzz around Coco Golf and the 15-year-old, what she is doing right now at Wimbledon. will be an interesting week ahead to find out if she can keep on going. And to me, the ultimate would be to face Serena Williams. So thanks for listening and enjoy your tennis all week long. A lot more coming up on the grass at Wimbledon. I am still Ted Sobel, and we will talk to you again next week on Touching Greatness. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.